welcome back to the Artverse Commerce Podcast, proudly presented by Masters in Motion. This week is Adrian Pancorea. Uh, he's a cinematographer. His most recent work is on Glow, uh, the second season, and on Rami, which is uh, currently making a run on, on Hulu. And um, one of those conversations that's so fascinating because you're talking with someone who has been in the game for a long time, and uh, right now he's really hitting his stride. And to, to talk to a person that as recently as 2015 was debating if he should um, quit and become a teacher because, it, you know, the... The droughts and the periods between jobs were too long. And this is a person who has been to Sundance and South by Southwest um, and has a ton of um, film festival experience, a ton of success, you know, a ton of success, like in the in the simplest way to describe it um, by any metric that any of us would would uh, normally look at things and to go through just really long bouts of, of wondering if he's in, if he's doing the right thing and wondering if he should stick with it. And so to hear about a person who does and then um, ends up in the last couple of years, like really finding their stride and really finally being recognized for the quality of work that they can do. And now is just off to the races and uh, doing a lot of uh, episodic TV for shows that are really pretty and for shows that have um, a cinematic point of view and stuff where it is it is um, um, a cinematography flex and that you can't, you know, you are showing off the craft um, and now he's doing that. And so it was great to talk to him about it, great to get his perspective on it, great to um, hear from a guy who, you know, like I said, was at a brink point which is fascinating um, because, like I said, he's now DPing uh, really excellent shows uh, on television. So great conversation with him. And uh, the Art vs. Commerce podcast is uh, presented by Masters in Motion. If you go to shooteditlearn.com, you can learn about their three-day uh, filmmaking um conference that happens in Austin, Texas every year in December. ASC cinematographers, ACE editors, production designers, everybody comes down. Uh, it's at the Alamo Draft House on 6th Street. It's an awesome venue to do this kind of thing. They uh, give presentations. Um, there's a, a practical day, like learning learning how to light um, a scene from Game of Thrones is, is something that happened one year. Uh, but the best part is that a lot of these presenters stay for the three days. They come out at night. You can grab them a beer. You can talk to them. And um, that whole aspect, the social aspect, is what makes it really special so that's uh, masters in motion and they are our presenter and so thank you for being here this is the art vs. commerce podcast and it is adrian pancorea week so you know when sitting down to do research for every like new guest i have and i'm looking at their website i was really taken by the level of um personal information on your website I think that it really spoke to who you who you must be just in terms of you know even on the one hand just the um how the bio is really an actual you know discussion about yourself and where you come from and then also that that additional tab talking about your parents um I, I don't you don't come across that a lot honestly like people are trying to be a bit I don't know, mysterious, but that's not your bag. And I was curious about your thoughts on that. Well, it's funny is that I had this exact argument with another DP friend of mine who says like, basically your bio on your site should be about nothing. Like, like literally the most bare bone boilerplate stuff you can say about yourself and that's it. Yeah. And for me, when it comes to narrative, I'm going to be around these people more than I'm going to be around my family. Mm. 
you know, we're going to be going into something that could take, could be a part of someone's life for the better part of a decade with them trying to get it made. Yeah. And, uh, or it's their one big shot, you know? And when it comes down to that, when you put it, frame it in those terms, it always seems silly to me to not know more about the person you're going to war with, so to speak. So, I mean, to me, all the things that kind of happen to me kind of inform who I am as a cinematographer, as much as the art does, you yeah. know, as much as the work does. So I felt like it, that's an inextricable part of, of, of what I bring as a cinematographer. And I thought it would be something that people should know. If they're not interested in that kind of stuff, so be it. But for the ones that are, I think it helps to ferment a strong connection immediately and then a tighter working relationship as we begin said projects. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. No. And I think it, it, it immediately sets, sets the right tone. And it's funny that you are describing it under the terms of narrative specifically, you know, cause it's not, it, it is, it is different than, than the commercial world and you are on these longer terms and it's kind of like, um, I don't know, the sentiments are different even in that, courting process before you even meet a person sure i mean that's the funny thing about the interview process as a whole it's like you just have the work basically speaks for you until you can speak and mm. anything i can do to get closer to an artist or a producer to let them know who i am before that process starts you know we can start to get past that or they can like they can we can use the time to actually get involved in the context of the uh in yeah. the context of the project itself. So it just, it removes one block that get, it's a pre dug hole that allows us to go further and deeper down into the subject as opposed to uh, having to have small talk because they already feel like they know at least a part of my motivations for becoming a cinematographer in the first place. Yeah. And going to like what that other DP was talking about saying that you shouldn't do that kind of thing. It's like, look, if I guess if you run across a person who reads that and is rubbed the wrong way, that kind of, they probably shouldn't have been, collaborating with you in the first place so it almost it filters out what it's supposed to i would imagine yeah i mean you know it's 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 definitely something where it's like this is who i am this is what i bring to your production mm -hmm. this is an asset and if you don't view it as such then maybe like i said it could be oil and water you never know yeah yeah well how did you um come up in the industry looking at your your imdb definitely looked like you had some interesting pa jobs in the beginning were you always trying to be a cinematographer or was it the kind of yeah. thing where you were taking a look around and it took a minute no i always knew i always knew i wanted to be a cinematographer but i didn't have any real i didn't have any film credits i didn't go to film school Mm. So, like, the only way you're going to become a cinematographer in that regard is if you, you have to work your way up from the bottom. So, you know, I PA'd for a number of years, and I started uh, ACing because at the time when I started, it was still, that was the only path to being a cinematographer, really. Not where the strongest, shortest path, you know, become a work as a PA, camera PA, then a loader, then a second, then a first, then an operator, and then a DP. And uh, I felt like I was going to, I uh, I felt like that was the smartest way for me. And then when I came to the realization that I was not going to be good enough, frankly, what as is an that? AC to be able to progress as a cinematographer, uh -huh. I, I, I was like, I'm going to have to find a different way. And that's when I went to Grip and Electric because I just wasn't, I wasn't good enough. I just didn't have the skill set necessary. Were you from talking a, from like a lighting perspective? No, from a first AC perspective. Um, I thought I wasn't good enough as an AC um, 
to be able to work my way and keep getting hired with productions. Oh, producers, interesting. Photographers, and then moved up. I'm sorry if I said no, 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 no. It's fine. So it wasn't. It wasn't that like the job of an AC wasn't going to prepare you in a way that you felt comfortable. Is that you realized that you weren't going to be as good at like like are you talking about just not as good at pulling specifically? Yeah, pulling and all that kind of stuff. Just the detail oriented nature that you need to be a, a first AC in terms of all the equipment and little pieces and all that stuff. It just it just didn't work for me. So I wanted to find a different way onto the path How that long? I could work and build my career and the smartest way where I can work consistently with Grip Electric. So I did that for a while. How long were you in AC before that realization really kicked in? About a year and a half. Yeah. After I did my first 35 millimeter feature. Yeah. I was like, I was like, yeah, I'm not good enough to do this. Interesting. I, I think it's fascinating that you were able to have that type of self-assessment. Well, I mean, I knew what it meant took to be a good first AC. Mm -hmm. I knew first ACs who were working and were consistently being moved up. And I knew that if I wasn't working, you know, I came from lower middle class background. I was not going to be able to continue to work. I needed to be able to keep working to sustain the dream of becoming a cinematographer. And if I wasn't, I was going to have to find a different way, whether it meant odd jobs in Connecticut, like working at a video store or substitute teaching like I did for a while, or actually work in Grip Electric. And mm. I did all of it until times I could step up and shoot more. So, so you were you were substitute teaching while pursuing a film career at the same time? Oh, yeah. If I didn't have a job and they would call at 7 in the morning, be like, can you come here and do that? And I was like, yeah, I'll come and substitute teach. So I did that for a few years, too. And all sprinkled, all this stuff's happening concurrently, you know, trying to to fight to keep, to 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 make it, I guess. Yeah. You know, just to head above water when you were um that had after a year and a half of acing and you realized like you know i need to move over to g and e um was it bothering you mentally knowing that like well when i move over there i have to start all the way back down that different ladder in terms of just being a regular no because i was still I, I was gripping anyway mm -hmm. you know i was gripping anyway and, and working in, as an electric i was doing whatever i could yeah so it wasn't like i got also got in a really serious car accident Hmm. about two years after starting and after that when i was down for about a year and i had to have a back surgery like it was basically like starting over again anyway so it didn't matter oh wow so in a way it's kind of seems like you made the most out of that obviously annoying and frustrating situation well you know it's one of those things where if you don't i knew i wasn't going to make it like i just knew it was not going to be good enough to consistently mm -hmm. build my career with an AC. It just wasn't good enough. And, and um, that's it. Did you feel yeah. that like you that you knew that you would be better at G and E, or was it just like I just need to try and I'm not sure? Or did I you didn't have a know. I just thought you know like I knew that I could learn how to shape and cut light as a grip mm -hmm. and understand units. If I was in electric, so it could basically be like a lighting school while I worked. Totally. And um, yeah, and it worked out well because I would say that now one of my strengths as a cinematographer is that I know what I want from my lighting. Yeah. You know, I'm not, uh, we need to take a guess here and try something and then tear it down and rebuild it. I pretty much have an idea of what I want to do and the units I want to use and whatnot. So yeah, some, that confidence helps me divert energies that would normally be spent fretting about how exactly to light something onto other elements of production and cinematography. So totally. Was there yeah. um, a moment in that chain up where you, in what was the moment in, in when you were firsting that you were like, this isn't going to work out. That was the opposite. And you're like, I know that I'm actually, that this path is going to work out. No, not really. I mean, you know, I mean, I struggled. I almost quit many years. 
really know, just because I wasn't making enough money and the travel from Connecticut and being away from family all the time was almost too nomadic. Yeah. And uh, it was, it was tough. I mean, I, I almost took a job teaching at Brooklyn college in 2015. That's not that long ago. Yeah. So not that long ago, you know, it's, it's a tough thing. If you, I don't, I've done so many movies, you know, and it was, and it was, it's one of those things where you just have to keep fighting to catch a break. And it got to the point where I was like, I was, I always loved teaching. So it was something I'm, I was like, maybe I will have some solace in doing this. And I had been lecturing at Ithaca College a few times at Brooklyn College, and and I really dug it. So it was something where I was like, maybe this is an option. And then I got a break. Yeah. Well, not not to jump too far ahead. When you're um, you've worked your way up to a gaffer, how did you how did you go about making that that jump? I know that that's always a a tricky, difficult, no two people do it the same way type of um, move over and trying to like readjust and be viewed by your community as solely a cinematographer. Well, I mean, I was a I was a grit more than anything else. But the, oh, the really? happy thing, okay, yeah. I mean, but the happy thing that coincided with that decision to move to Genie was that the digital video digital video revolution had occurred. Mm-hmm. And in that way, the idea was that anybody could now have the the wherewithal to afford a camera, sure, and shoot fairly quality stuff and be able to manufacture a, a, a DP career mm-hmm. out of air my mentor tom stern once said that about me at a dinner he was like this is my friend adrian who's made a cinematography career out of out of nothing hmm. i remember at the time i was like not out of nothing but then i realized it's like yeah it was kind of out of nothing well what did but he mean like, by that that's in the sense that because you didn't go to film school or where does that coming from i didn't have the film school i didn't have any contacts i didn't have any real i didn't have any directors i came up with in terms of like who were consistently moving up at the same time i was to be able to help each other and build I didn't have any of that. So it was just kind of like trying to just hustle and hustle and hustle. Yeah. And the one thing I'm really good at at any position I've ever been at is being able to deal with the logistics of set life and set management. And, mm-hmm. and that just helps you maintain a, a, a kind of personal essence on set that is conducive to a good atmosphere and hard work. So that's one of my strongest things at the beginning as I was just a good set presence. I can imagine I, that gets you back. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. in terms of when you do start to be a DP, what, um, sticks out in your mind in the beginning as when things were not, not some sort of big break, but that, you know, things were going well and you felt like it was working somewhat. I know that you had that, that feeling, I guess, never fully solidified for a long time, but. Anything stick well, out? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I would say, I mean, I've told this story before in the sense that I had this idea in my mind that a million dollar movie would be the benchmark for when I would be okay. And that was, I, mean, I got a million dollar movie in 2009 called Rocksteady in upstate New York, and I shot that. And, and when I did that, and it really wasn't a big deal jumping up to a million dollars from essentially nothing, I had the small, biggest thing I'd done prior to that it was like a $150,000 feature. It really wasn't a big deal. And after that, when we jumped up to a million, I think it was like a million three or a million four. And it really wasn't that big of a deal to when me. You, like when I you didn't feel that, the pressure was I pressure where I was like, I see this is a, this is a really huge jump and I, I don't feel pressure in that way. So when that happened, I, I did that picture. I was like, okay, 
you just I can I feel like I can keep moving. And then the subsequent thing is like you know whether you do a feature that's much bigger than that, or my probably my most sex, successful feature is a hundred and forty thousand dollar movie called Night Owls. It's the same process in terms of just trying to create and tell the best story you can. So, you know, it's when you feel the the strength and confidence as a storyteller mm-hmm. instead of the budget and the tools. You know, that's the bigger deal. So. Yeah. At what point in that process were you um, picking up? an agent like did that take longer than usual going the narrative route versus commercial or well i mean it's i you know i met my first agent laura siegel because in 2000 middle of 2008 2009 right right around there i had i was one of the first people to own a red camera Mm. and i did a presentation on the camera at the long island international film expo Mm -hmm. and she met me there and said oh this guy knows what he's doing and she just signed me and uh, and I stayed with her for a number of years. Uh, I didn't have much movement. Um, uh, it just just didn't happen. You know, you just didn't. Yeah. The breaks just didn't come in the context of my time with Laura. And then um and then after that, I kind of floated around for a little bit, and I got a lot of the uh, I got a lot of um, keep in touch meetings. Yeah. So it's um sure. Yeah, you know, it's like it's when you think things are going really well, and at the end they just go, uh, so keep in touch, and which is basically a no. And I remember I was in Los Angeles and I got five straight keep in touch meetings. And at the end of the last one, I stood up and the guy was like, well, make sure you, I'm like, keep in touch. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, keep in touch. I'm like, great. So then I, I hopped out and then luckily, uh, when those things are happening, when those things are happening, I'm sorry, sorry. It's when those things are happening. Um, were those moments where you are wondering if you are in the right like, how was your headspace in that? Because I know that, because it well, sounds like you had constantly been wondering, like, sh- is this going to work for the long term? In those moments, is it, are you in like a deep questioning of that? Oh, of course, because I started in 1998. Yeah. And this was 2014 when I had, 2015 when I had these meetings, like right in there. Mm. And it's like, okay, I've been doing this for 16, 17 years, and I'm, just now getting meetings at APA and, and all these other places and, and getting the, you know, keep in touch meetings after 16 years at that point. Yeah. It does start to weigh on you and you're like, uh, well, and then you just have to make a question about whether or not you can persevere essentially. And that's the, that's the tough part is, is that's one of the hardest things being about the hardest things about the industry is, is being able to being able to persevere through any kind of adversity. So yeah. yeah, was it making you wonder about your own ability, or did you have that kind of mental fortitude where you're like, I know that what I'm doing is good. It's just a matter of it not working out with these people, or did it make you question that oh, stuff? Yeah, no. Oh, you question yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you. I'm not going to mention names. I can't sure. tell you how many conversations with certain cinematographers I've had where I'll be like calling up them up one week and be like, maybe I just suck. Yeah, maybe I maybe. I, I don't understand that I'm just not good at this. And then they'll call me back in a couple of weeks and they'll be like, Adrian, maybe it's just that I suck and that I don't know what I'm doing. And that's an uh, often, uh, I've had that conversation far too many times with friends and it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's the nature of it. But, but you know that you can tell a story. You just have to keep moving forward and hopefully find some material that'll connect with an audience. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting and comforting, frankly, to hear about the notion that, it wasn't a matter of also being tied to a certain director and moving up that way. 
because I think that for those that have that opportunity, obviously that's amazing, but um, it's nice to hear that it's not necessarily totally dependent on that um, and that you were just making your moves in a very independent way in terms of collaborative. It doesn't seem like there was any one particular collaborator, collaborator that it was really the the thing that like bootstrapped it almost. Well, I mean, you know, like I have directors who I love working with. Oh, sure, like Jordan, sure, sure. Jordan Galland, who I did Ava's Possessions with, and Charles Hood, who I did Night Owls with. Like those are two films that, those are two films that went to South by Southwest premieres in, mm-hmm. in 2014. Mm-hmm. And both of those guys are incredibly talented directors. Yeah. You know, again, as much as you want to be successful and 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 hope for a chance to move up. It's not easy even for successful directors to get features to get another feature or another project off the ground. Sure. So like, it is kind of like winning the lottery. And then once you win the lottery of getting a picture, then you have to win the lottery of getting into a prominent film festival. And then once you're in that festival, then you then have to win the third lottery to basically capture a prize at said festival. And it's, it's funny. It's like, it's like awards. It's like a, Film Festival Inception. You just go in another lottery. (laughs) I know that you've had uh, festival success. Um, Do you feel like you approach them in uh, certain ways that were a good way to do it? Or did you kind of just show up and like however it rolled, it rolled? Like what what was that thought process in those moments? I was woefully unprepared for my festival experiences, in fact. And uh, it's funny, you know, like I just, I loved going to Sundance in terms of like the experience is crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, South Southwest is a great experience too. It's a little bit more chill and familial than the the madness of, of Sundance, which is a little bit more cacophonous. Yes. But, uh, but it's, you know, it's, I don't think you can take it. I think the key to it is to not take it too serious. Sure. Uh, for me, you know, like I just, I couldn't go there and just network. You know, I couldn't go to a party and be like, how many people can I meet here? It would yeah. drive me insane. I'd never yeah. be able to relax. And I just can't do that. Yeah. You know, I got a friend who can do that. You know, she can jump around the room and meet as many people and, and strategically use a party like that. I, I don't have the skill set for it. I'm really bad at it. Mm-hmm. You know, people were like, oh, move around and meet people. And I remember my first Sundance party, I met a costume designer who can really help me as a cinematographer in terms of my career. Sure. And we talked for like 90 minutes. And then my friend came back and was like, how many people you talked to? I'm like, oh, I'm just talking to her. We've just been sitting here talking. And it just ends up, you know, I just, it's, it's nice to meet professionals. And I didn't take the experience too seriously. And I just hope to see some good movies and have a good time. And You stay true to and, yourself too, though, you know? Yeah. And I think, be. yeah, but you know, like it, it's good to, it's good to hear, especially knowing the success that you've found, because, you know, I think these are the things that are kind of on people's minds. And it's also the type of stuff that not a lot of people are actively um, discussing and you can go about it in, in, in different ways. And, you know, we sat down with, um, with Eric Bronco, um, a couple weeks ago and he, he was like, you know, I had a publicist for my second time at Sundance and it was just fascinating to hear the, 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 the many ways and it, it kind of reinforces that it's not exactly, there isn't one way I'll say that. Yeah. Me and Eric actually sat down and talked exactly about that kind of stuff. Oh, really? I just, yeah. And I was like, did you, did you have a publicist for this? Do you have a, do? and it's like, it was funny to navigate one things one way and then see how someone else does it. And it's sure, you know, it's not something, it's not exactly like they have a film course preparatory. No, they do not. You, it, 
you're just kind of sailing on your own experience and the advice of others. So. Totally, totally. And it's yeah. also interesting that, you know, so you go to South by in that 2014. So you obviously were making something successful in that moment. And that's when you said that you had that um, keep in touch kind of, um, you know, five in a row, which then makes you question everything. And that was like right after you had a sh- had a had a film in a major festival. Well, but then the, the, here, I mean, here's a testament to what you can and it doesn't matter. You could still make a good movie and it still doesn't matter in terms of success. Right. Yeah, Night Owls went to South by Southwest, had great screenings, sold out stuff, had a buzz screening added to it, got great reviews, sold to MGM Orion, comes out, has 100% Rotten Tomatoes, positive reviews. Oh, wow. New York Times, LA Times, Variety, Hollywood Reporter. Wow. Nobody has seen Night Owls. Now, in terms of concrete box office success... A lot of I think a lot of people have seen it and it did well for Rosa and for Adam, but like it didn't make any massive noise at the box office. Mm-hmm. And it's funny you can still make go you can still do the you can still win the Inception War. Not to mention the <laughs> the improbability of actually making a good movie. Yeah, and the movie still just cannot hit. Right, it just can be a success. Yeah, you really have to have a kind of level and kind of like weightless expectation of the work. You just mm. have to let the work and doing the good work and letting that be the satisfaction because in terms of the success and the hitting of it, it's, it's all, it's impossible to navigate or to predict. Yeah. So in that way, the energy put towards it is useless. So I don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. so you, uh, you know, in 2015 you are actively, wondering about becoming a teacher and in certain ways walking away but but that doesn't happen oh um, totally what ha- what what yes. uh saved that from being the result from being the course well tara and i think i'm not sure if she was really supported in this but like tara wanted to sign me at gersh and um and I was a little bit down because I was, I was like, you know, like, like, what else do I need to do? I just need a break. I just need a break. And Tara signing me at Gersh was a break. It gave me a little bit more confidence. I was like, okay, now she's a friend. So that's a, that's a difficult thing. We had a previous relationship. So it was like, it was something where she was the, she was an age, she was an agent at my old agency. Yeah. CEC. My first one. So I was like, okay, let's see what happens. And then she got me an interview for this Chinese film. And that was $25 million movie. And the biggest thing I'd ever done was like $2 million, basically. Yeah, it's a, and I was like, a jump. Yeah, so let's go for it. And I got that movie. And I was like, great. And that gave me a nice big piece of confidence. But I had some issues at home with family that wouldn't allow me to leave. And then I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go. And then Reed Morano met uh, Jesse Perens by chance. Jesse shot the pilot in the finale for, for Glow Season 1 and and he met Reed and was like, Reed, uh, maybe you can help me. Glow needs a DP. And she mentioned my name. And basically because she mentioned my name, that got my reel in the hands of Liz and Carly. And because of the reel, I got an interview. And then I got the show. And ever since then, it's been show after show so far. So Wow. But I, I mean, I think that that kind of says something, though, because, I mean, Reed is obviously, I mean, ASC cinematographer, an incredible director, a great person to know. But at the same time, just thinking about that comment you made about how like you weren't talking to necessarily the right people at that Sundance party. A DP isn't going to expect that their big break is going to come from another DP that's a friend of theirs, you know, but it's more, you just never, 
you never really know. And it's like kind yeah. of amazing. Um, yeah, I got a t- I got a text from three in the morning from Reed. <laughs> she was like, she was like, hey, because she's six hours ahead. It's nine a.m. In, in London, right? And she's like, hey, you interested in shooting Glow? And it was three in the morning. I was like, you know, like looking at the, the phone. Yeah, and I was like, yes, yes. I mean, yeah, amazing I that the t- home traveling from China versus traveling from LA, it's a huge difference. Sure. Then it just ended up happening. I remember I was in my mother-in-law's uh, nursing home where she was convalescing from a broken hip. Mm. Everything's very quiet, you know, and then I got the phone call from Tara and she did that classic juke on me. She was like, oh, it's too bad because you're going to go to LA to shoot glow. And then I was just sitting there and you can't scream because it's all these poor old ladies. <laughs> yeah. Where- with broken hips and are injured and you're like just let me walk outside this building and scream for 30 to 40 seconds and i can come back in ah that's amazing that's amazing and certainly earned um, like the, the joke would have been like a reverse on my mother-in-law and you see the window in the background and then just some fat bald guy doing this with screaming <laughs> in the background and you don't hear any sound oh that's good um well you know and then you get that opportunity is there um kind of a moment in the beginning of of nervousness about rising to the challenge of that opportunity well sure simply because of the fact that you have somebody with a pet, photographic pedigree like christian yeah i mean it's a, a big step up in terms of like just having to not just to, to shoot something but to fill the shoes of someone else yeah who has already done really good work and then you're talking about shooting a uh and then you can talk about shooting a, um, a TV show that is a massive ensemble with a very specific uh, kind of element to it in terms of like production design and costumes and makeup. And then having to navigate just the needs of a production like that in terms of their needs for coverage and their needs to basically shoot a sports movie within the context of a dramedy, yeah. which is what the wrestling elements are. So, yeah. It's a, it was a it was a big step up and a massive responsibility and not shooting with any crew I knew with the exception of one operator and one AC so it was a it was a big deal yeah um, I guess to kind of break those things up because those are all things that I wanted to talk about when it came to glow is I think the sure. biggest the biggest thing for me and the biggest question is you're coming into something where the visual look and everything is already set and you're also talking about sets that probably have lights kind of always done in a certain way and like how do you balance knowing the way that it needs to be done versus your own self-expression and obviously it's not it's not your show for you to like go make your personal art on but you know it's sure. I just that balance is very interesting to me and how people achieve it well I mean it's difficult because you're trying you're the creators want to empower you to do your best work but they also have a show that they're trying to protect yeah so, and, you know, and also for the nature that I light very differently from Christian, you know, in many ways we light and, and expose our photography in, in completely opposite ways. Can you describe so, that? So just from a technical standpoint, you know, like Christian for, for me, like, like really digs into the bottom half of his negative and kind of like mm-hmm. kind of drags it up and kind of breaks it apart so he can add texture. And mm-hmm. I came from shooting film where I always wanted to have a thick negative that I can then manipulate and push around and post sure in any capacity you know and then it's a that's something where i always try to like find some balance in terms of what he does and what he wanted to to maintain from the first season versus what i was doing and then the other difficult thing was the fact that shooting those sets uh the major sets 
all of them changed in some capacity, whether they were redesigned or they were being repurposed in different ways. The gym was being turned into the active glow set. Right. So you have a kind of weird amalgamation between an existing set and one that had to look like another place. I can see that being time. freeing in a way, though, because it, like, it's just enough different that it gives you some, some leverage. You know, like you weren't totally boxed yeah. in where it's like this is the exact same set as last time, you know? Yeah. But the tough thing is, is whether or not people expect to see the same thing. Sure. So yeah. you might, you know, so like that's the, that's the, that's the bigger challenge. And you don't want to screw that up because if you screw that up, chances are you're going to be gone. Totally. You know? so, well, so what is that discussion like then? You know, how, how are you having that active discussion? I'm sure that there was talk about that, this exact thing in prep, but then also while production is going on, you're like, I'm assuming checking in with people and you're like, so how do you think it's going? You know, that, that, that whole thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's basically what you do. You just kind of monitor the situation. Yeah. You know, you keep moving forward and then like, you know, we didn't have as much time or as money, as much money as the first season. So it's like, you know, when you get a mandate that, you know, you want the camera to oh, have dynamic energy and you that. want to be able to shoot in a kind of like in a, in a new kind, you need to establish a new style of the glow show itself, which is now part of the vernacular in season two. But then you also have to make sure that everybody gets a single all lines are covered. So, you know, you have to find some way to like shoot all that coverage, try and find a way to use camera while it won't feel too claustrophobic. It's always a, a delicate balance. And then there's also the point of the fact that you control nothing because you don't control the edit. Mm -hmm. So unless you decide like, I'm going to do this in a one -er, and I'm not going to give you any options in post. Yeah. Uh, like you can't do that in TV. It's impossible, especially for a comedy that is, the like like glow where it's written long and they want the ability to cut any kind of couplet of lines. Oh, you know, it's, okay. it's a different kind of way to structure cinematography. You know, like the edit is an incredibly intricate and indelible part of the experience within the context of the cinematography. The edit dictates camera in many ways. Yeah. So that's a difficult thing to try and measure and line up. You give them what they need and you try to put those flourishes of camera and light where you can. So. Mm -hmm. And especially someone coming from wanting to have a really big negative and, and or fat ne negative and being able to have a lot of control in, in the grade. Um, are you a part of that? A part of the grade? The problem is like I was, I moved back east yeah. for a few months. Ian Vertebeck at Light Iron is doing the color correction and then I'm in, I'm view, witnessing it across the, uh, yeah. across the state Hard. in New York. So not exactly think. the same. Yeah. But, but, you know, but Ian did the first season. Mm. So mm -hmm. in terms of, in terms of, and he's an incredibly gifted colorist. So, sure. you know, you can give him an idea of where you think the negative should be transferred into the look of the show. And then he pushes it into a place where it feels like, uh, you still have some photographic collateral as a cinematographer and it mm -hmm. honors the intent of the creators and the producers and the writers. So totally. it's, um, it's again, the funny thing about tele television as opposed to doing like small features and independence is that, you know, the, the net of creatives that all have their hands in these pots is it's a much bigger pot. Sure. So it's an, it's a, that's definitely something when you, come from narrative and go to TV. Yeah. You have to understand the, the shift of that dynamic. So. Now, did you just find that um, you shot it the way that you wanted to knowing, cause I guess like explain the difference in the way that you and Chris approached it. Um, I feel like in a way you could both approach it in your own ways, but if the result gets to where it needs to be, then it doesn't really matter. And if you're just going to be adding grain later and kind of giving it the same effect, but you're just achieving that in the grade versus him kind of doing it because of like a push process. Um, 
it's are did you feel like you could you could do it the way you wanted because you were gonna there's like more than one way to skin the cat to get it to look that way at the end i think so for me i just want that room in the negative Right. You know, I, I'm I used the LUT built by Ian that that was like the show LUT that Christian used from the first season. And then because we changed camera systems from the dragon to the helium mm-hmm. and we were shooting AK, Ian made uh, elemental changes to the LUT to be able to maintain the look in camera mm-hmm. from the second season to the first season. But there is a significant amount of post processing that, that Ian does in terms of layering and diffusion and grain and all the rest of that stuff that sure. kind of play into the nature of the of the look build. It's not like something like in uh, American Princess, which I shot for Genji yeah. right after, where I built specific LUTs from scratch for my show. Mm-hmm. And basically Steve Bodner, who lit that, uh, who uh, color corrected that, yeah. basically was able to just take my negative and my the LUT that I created with him and basically move and just shape the photography a little tighter. It's interesting you know? that you guys were both using the same LUT and glow. Would that, wouldn't that sort of enforce um, approaching it in a similar way in terms of exposure in camera? Not for me. I no. mean, like, it just, like, it, for me, it's like, you know, like, if you're exposing something way, way down in the bottom half of the negative, mm-hmm. and then you're pulling it up and then making your making a massive adjustments in the mids and I'm giving you a very full mid that you then have to turn down and manipulate the contrast and post. It's getting to something in a different way. It's just the opposite side of the road. Right. So oh, yeah. for, me, it just, for me, it ended up being something that it was like, I could still, I could still light the way I wanted to with that LUT mm. and I can still get the way I wanted to and expose the way I wanted to. And I know the show would get to where it needed to be. I also had some specific philosophical differences between first season and the second season that motivated a lot of my choices. So what were those? Whereas Christian, Christian wanted everything to be maintained from a naturalistic and naturalistically motivated and practical standpoint. Mm-hmm. I honored that. And then within certain tones, I would make a, I would make small twists of the, of the, uh, of the, the photographic kind of template and philosophy to kind of suit the theme of the second season for me, which was to, this collision between the personal and the showbiz life of these people and how like psychologically those kind of conflicts would kind of were manifesting themselves in different ways through many of the characters in the context of the second season. So I would make small choices to kind of introduce elements of theatricality to the lighting to try and kind of bridge these elements of the world. So totally. And I'm, and I, you know, and then when the making of the show within the show, that must have been quite fun because that doesn't have a precedent set and you're a bit more free to roam. And it's also super stylistic and kind of crazy. Um, what was yeah. that um, specific aspect of it like for you creatively and what did you enjoy out of that? Well, for, for me, it was just being able to kind of embrace everything that I shot the, sh- the show would do. You know, like we could, right. we can use, we could actually tell the operators to not be perfect. Yeah. To actually, to actually screw up and, make tilts a little bit too late and make your hand held a little more shoddy, make the crane work not so perfect in the dance thing. So it would like, it's, it's feel like they did it. It's, 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 it's not, it's not a perfect show. So it shouldn't look like a perfect kind of thing. It shouldn't be absolutely perfectly choreographed. It should have some roughness to it. And then like in, in uh, Britannica's lab, like we would use like old school lighting techniques, like using iron shut uh, metal shutters and old tungsten lights for lighting effects, as opposed to 
lightning strikes and stuff that look perfectly normal. There's a certain theatricality to those choices that kind of mirrored what I thought the show kind of embodied. So Yeah, it must have just been a lot of fun creatively to plot that kind of stuff and be like, how would it happen if these ladies were in charge? Yeah, and don't forget, like, Sam's directing. So you have right, to kind of right. think, like, Sam a little bit. What are Sam's thoughts and ideas? He was a schlocky horror thing, so he would he kind of would kind of like he would kind of be emboldened in his own taste in terms of like he even says that you hired me to that's why you hired me. Like yeah. He even says in the second season, like you have to think a little bit like Sam would be okay with this. Like, oh, I cut off her head a little bit on that tilt. Sam would be like, it's fine, let's go. Right. Right. Move on. You know, it's so. kind of fun because it like reminds me of you know when um, actors are playing uh, someone who is acting and they have to act like they are acting badly. You're you're not you're like shooting as if you don't know how to shoot as well as you know how to shoot. It's, it's, it's like, uh, it's meta and I could see it being just really enjoyable, um, process. Yeah. Yeah. There's little jokes. Like when the, like when Ruth is approaching, uh, not Ruth, but Olga is approaching Betty and the, uh, Debbie in the, in the shower. Yeah. And then she reaches for, and then it's obviously like the hairy cameraman's arm opening up Debbie's <laughs> shower. And you know, little things like that. I love it reminds me of like those, bad schlocky 80s horror comedies like student bodies and all these other kind of films i used to love watching so oh yeah i mean a lot of it was also referential which you know that's also quite fun um yeah and also coming from you know in terms of that narrative to episodic shift and tv shift um working with a lot of different people with their hands in the bowl and then also working with multiple directors um this show had that did it not Yes. Yeah. yeah so, absolutely. Seven different directors. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. None of whom I'd ever worked with before. So it was. You know. So it's quite interesting then, like, not only are you um, within a world for a much longer time and sets that have already been established, like, that's already well different than a movie, but then also, um, you know, just getting direction from, from different people, but everybody is tasked with the same thing of like making it seem as though nothing is being handed off to different people. Uh, what was that collaborative relationship like with seven different directors for the same content? Well, you know, like you just have to find something. Mean, Glow isn't strictly a stylistic show that I felt like needed to maintain any kind of continuity dramatically from 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 episode to episode. We could go to handheld if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's one that's not shot handheld in this season that I fought with the director to. We really thought it should have been handheld. And it was kind of rejected. And uh, it's still to this day, I'm like, I think that scene should have been handheld. So, mm. you know, it's funny how like certain things are liked or not liked. But when it comes to the photography, I always come from the point of what is the dramatic point of the scene? What are the dramatic elements or the comedic elements that are driving the scene? And like, and what are those, what are, how should that stuff be manifested in camera? Yeah, and that way, me if I make those choices based on that, then I'm always being honest with the photography. So. Yeah, that being that working as like your guide and compass does it allows you to kind of keep things. But I could I could see it being a bit because you get into a groove with people on your set, and then like you're in a groove, and then that lead role jumps out. I could see that just being like the the reset time and getting back into a groove with another person. I could see that being. Um, you know, that's just the, the challenge of that medium. Yeah, it's very rare. It's very rarely that you have one director working out over the course of a entire season. It just doesn't usually happen anymore with uh, when it comes to uh, 
photography. It's 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 just it's very rare. So in terms of connecting with different directors, you just have to. For me, it was a process of like talking to them about the nature. For me, it was an it was talking to each director about the process of the of the particular episode. Yeah, right. Over the they achieved dramatically and comedically, obviously, the laugh is always going to triumph. Yeah. And get it, but in terms of the drama, you know, we tried to find ways of like. Where, where like what communicates the path that we're trying to do now like kate dennis likes to move the camera a lot more mm. you know and someone like lynn shelton does not like to use the camera in that way and then someone for like mira who directed the good twin episode the, the show within the show you know like we came down on the whole it should be a, a messy representation of sam's uh directing style and mm-hmm. it just ended up being embodied within the context of those choices so as long as you have a director who has a clear vision like that about how to attack something, yeah, you as a cinematographer can kind of progress and maintain the maintain a, a steady kind of balance on the ship, so to speak. So. And I can also see that being somewhat enjoyable, where it's obviously all one project for you, but with every every episode is its own um, creative experience in a way. I mean, certain things are similar, of course, but you know, you're dealing with a new director who it sounds like at times they, some people have like completely different views on the same ty- uh, element, whether it be like camera movement or whatever else. And sure. that kind of like keeps it fresh, even though you're in the middle of a project versus jumping to a totally new one. Yeah. Like, you know, like Kate would like to like, Kate set up a giant master that kind of traveled for this first scene in uh, episode three inside the gym that tra- traveled through everybody it was just one big long lateral dolly tribe that started with sam and and doing this uh photo shoot with uh with a bash and then it comes up into the ring and you see like everybody training and then it comes and settles in as as justine comes into the uh the gym and has a conversation with everybody about how her day at school went and that was a gigantic dolly shot to set up and it was just like i know for a good deal of it like there was very little chance that that whole dolly move would survive but Mm -hmm. It doesn't cost me much time in terms of lighting. Mm-hmm. It enables her to be able to execute some element of what she believes should be the photograph, the, the photographic representation of that material. Yeah. So it's not going to cost me a ton of time, and it's going to able enable me to move and allow her to express herself and still get everything that the creators want. Like that just makes sense in terms of the working environment, making sure everybody has a say. Totally, so. totally. Um, yeah. And then I also wanted to talk about Rami, and one of the things about that. Uh, maybe in direct comparison to glow is that you're coming into a show that is just getting started. So a lot of the potentially, I mean, you know, you could tell me how it went, but a lot of the creative is still up for debate perhaps in a way that, you know, a whole season hasn't already been shot and things are somewhat solidified um, and that you're following another DP's work. Uh, How, how was that um, in relationship to, to glow? Well, I mean, you know, it's like, it was because all they had was the pilot. Right. And we're going to have to replace several scenes in the pilot anyway. Mm. It was something where they were like, I could have whatever I wanted to in terms of executing my vision for what the show was. That's great. So I wasn't really constrained in any way. Yeah. In fact, from a coloring standpoint, all that stuff comes to back to match my photography in the rest of the season. Yeah. In terms of the color profile and the LUT, like and that LUT's just placed over the footage from the, from the pilot and then they shift it into a world that more closely matches what we shot for the rest. And mm-hmm. so in that regard, like we could have a full reign of, in terms of creative exchange between the, the Rami and Christopher Storr and Bridget and myself and been able and Hallie and all the guys at A24 and have some idea. And like my, for me, 
I didn't think it should be a show that was completely naturalistic. I thought, you know, a lot of people have preconceived notions about who Muslims are and what a Muslim family must be. Mm-hmm. And I thought framing that in the context of a show that looked a little bit more cinematic and had a look that felt more like a show would be actually be more valuable. Oh, sorry, of, the pilot wasn't that way. Yeah, the pilot is extremely naturalistic. Yeah. You know, original photography is extremely naturalistically motivated. And we stick with practical motivations as well. Yeah. But when it comes to the style of it, the color profile, and the LUT, I felt like something a little bit more... Cinematic? Rich and cinematic actually helps translate that material in a way that's more accessible to the audience. So I made an effort to kind of create something that was a little bit more... Just felt a little richer. Just felt a little bit more in terms of the color profile, not camera moves, but the color punk profile and the kind of visual realization of the world. I wanted something that was a little bit more stylized. So I thought that that heightened stylization would help kind of relate a story that is foreign to most to most uh, people in the world. Yeah, at least people who are experienced Muslim uh, families in this regard on a Hulu show. And I thought that that would just help yeah. us in terms of making it feel more. Unpalatable is the wrong word, but just something like using cinematic conventions to help something that feels foreign feel more familiar. Right, right. Familiarity, I think, is the key thing. And I mean, it it sounds like that is also, that was a key difference in a way, philosophically, that you were having with Chris and Glow, that you kind of enjoy certain moments of heightened... um, Things don't need to be like perfectly motivated in terms of sources, and that you can get you can get surrealistic to a, to a degree. It, it, you know, you're not like entering some sort of um, crazy Michael Gondry world, but like you can have, you can have things be, um, you could have a point of view with your, with your cinematography in a way that the lighting can actually be an active part of the storytelling. Right. It can be participatory as opposed to something that just exposes a, uh, something for the world. It can be something that helps, illuminate character or, yeah. or enhance a dramatic point. So I mean, so, I, I, I let to me, that's where I view cinematography in terms of its great value is the, totally. the it's, it's aid in impacting this story of storytelling. So, yeah, I mean, Rami's not a documentary, you know, like you're, you're, you're trying, if, if the writing and the direction can have a point of view and be trying to say things with the, the medium that that art form is, there's no, there's no reason that the cinematography can't as well in terms of, you know, elevating past the normal, I don't know, physics of everyday life and how light works, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's just something where I think uh, that's just particularly my taste as a cinematographer and, and the things that totally. kind of appealed and motivated me. I'm about to do a new show and there's a different look for every episode. So, oh, that's so much fun. Like anthology almost in that regard? or yeah. It's that... an anthology, but it's one character. Cool. Yeah, so every, like, there's a debate. We may shoot film on one episode, and we may do a black and white episode. Oh, sick. I'm going to create nine, well, at least I'll create at least eight separate LUTs for each of the, each each episode. That sounds like a blast. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, um, so it sounds like uh, it's a good thing that you didn't become a teacher. Uh, <laughs> that things are things are. I mean, go- I'm, I'm waiting to see if I can go teach at the Rockport workshops right now. I'm, I'm pretty excited. Oh no! I mean, I think you would be a good teacher. That don't get me wrong. Um, but it seems it is kind of amazing where you're where you're at uh, now versus like just four short years ago. Um, how often do you uh, get into a position where you reflect on that? Reflect on the fact that I could have been out of it. 
Um, yeah, and I guess like the all the, the time. all the time, all the time, because nothing is promised. Mm-hmm. I still think about it. Mm-hmm. I got friends right now who are like calling me, being like, "Oh, it's so dead." I'm wondering, Ugh, I don't know what I'm gonna do, and I'm gonna be. It's it's a from a free. I mean, I, I joke about this a lot, and it's kind of it's funny and sad. Yeah, is that like it? Usually, it takes me about two months. And then at the end of those two months, if I don't have a job yet, I convinced I'm never going to work again. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, <laughs> I don't think that I don't think that goes away. But it's you know it's it's if you're a good person and you know, like you're going to find something, it's going to work. But it is a terrifying thing, you know. It's like it's especially if it's something like me, who like my you know it's like when I can't tell you how many tax returns just showed up like negative amount of money i made you know every year it's kind of like oh you operated at a loss this year you operated at a loss this year so it's like in the beginning it was you know it's it was not easy yeah it's still not easy but it's it's really rewarding and one of the great benefits about the recent success is that i can go back to the east coast where i am now where i shot rami where i'll be shooting this next show and all the people who killed themselves on super low budget uh, movies and stuff for me in the beginning at like $150 rates and whatnot for 14 hours, you know, and killed themselves for me. I can hire them on these new shows at rates that help them support their families and it's and rewarding health care and stuff. That's a really big deal to me. Oh yeah. No, I mean, because as a department head, there's a whole, there's crews of multiple departments you're in like long-term relationships with. If as long as you can take them from show to show, um, there's a, big part of it's managerial and there's a lot of pride in, in, in being able to do that. It's a huge part of cinematography, being a cinematographer. I mean, photography obviously is a huge part of it, mm-hmm. but you know, the managerial and the interpersonal, those things are just as important. Yeah. It's in TV. It's a huge part. Huge. I, yeah. Almost even more so just because it's a beast that is not, um, any individual film feels a bit like isolated. Like it, it comes together it, it occurs and then it ends shows feel like, you know, parts can get swapped out. Things can come back in like it's it's more of a, an amorphous entity that doesn't end people like things. There's just a lot of more input output of different aspects, but it like continues and makes it um, more about the people that you bring in and continue to work with because it's like somewhat never ending. It is never ending. It is. And then you meet new people along the way picked up that become important to you. Yeah. It's a great thing. It's very nomadic. It's very existential at times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's never the same. Uh, you know, it's, every day is different. And I consider that a great value to it. It's amazingly exciting in that regard. And the unexpected is something that, you know, I value very much. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great, man. I mean, it, I'm, it's been uh, awesome talking. I, I uh, was really looking forward to why, uh, talking about Glow and Rami specifically, I, to get prepared, I was watching Rami only just now um, to, to talk to you about it. And uh, the show is just so fascinating. Um, I feel like I haven't seen a family like that represented. And yeah. it's cool It's cool that you know to be involved in projects that reach that other level of, of importance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, I feel like that show is that important. Yeah. They're going to make uh, they're going to make a great second season. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing uh, your story and, um, uh, you know, some some sage advice throughout. It it was uh, was a pleasure to talk to you. 
Pleasure's mine, man. Thank you. Thank you.